Amen. This morning, we are in Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. We're going to continue through our readings, our exposition through the book of Exodus. And I want to begin by just talking about how we live in a very informal age. You know, in the early 20th century, if you left the house, it would mean uh, for the guys, they would be in a suit and a hat or something like that. Uh, For the ladies, you would probably leave with gloves and a dress on uh, and maybe even a girdle or something like that. And going to the office would certainly mean combing your hair and, and putting on shoes. But these days, it seems like it doesn't really matter what your hair looks like. Uh, you can stroll into your office wearing probably a t-shirt, a Patagonia fleece, and maybe some Allbirds on your feet or something like that. We are much more casual people. In fact, if you remember uh, back in 2005, there was a little bit of a kerfuffle, we could say, in the news with uh, the Northwestern University women's lacrosse players because they had won the championship. They showed up at the White House to meet the president in flip-flops. That was a big no-no. And a lot of people started discussing whether it was okay to meet the president in slippers. But we've come a long way, haven't we, with our dress code? Uh, We can probably think of both the good and the bad of our casual society. Probably the good is that no longer do you show up to church in a suit. Uh, And yet there's probably also a drawback. Because sometimes it's hard to see the difference between what is formal and what is informal. What is perhaps important and what is perhaps less important. Even in our casual culture, we know inherently that there are different clothes for different occasions. What you wear to bed is probably, and I do say probably, different than what you will wear when you go to school. And what you wear to school is probably going to be something different than what you're going to wear on your first date. And what you wear on your first day is probably going to be different from what you wear at a wedding or at a funeral. Most of us instinctually realize that there are special clothes for special days. You know, it's why I wear a coat and tie on Sundays. I remember speaking to a professor once, and I was like, why do we wear coats and ties to the pulpit? And, you know, he's an older gentleman. He's like, Stephen, let me tell you something. The newscasters wear a suit to tell the news. You are telling the good news. So you better be wearing a suit. Different generation, I know. But I do wear a suit because it signifies something about the work that I'm doing. And doctors, you wear those white coats, even though it probably doesn't help you that much in your duty. But it signifies about the work that you are doing. Uh, Graduates, you wear a black gown. It tells you something when you wear a black gown. 
Because clothes often signify something about the place that they're in, the occasion, and their profession. Even more so, in the Old Testament, with the garments of the high priest. In Exodus 28, we are given a description of the priest and his clothes. Aaron and his kin. They have been handpicked by God to be priests, to work in his holy temple. And they are to be symbolically closer to God than anyone else in the face of the world at that time. And the question is, what am I going to wear? What will I wear when I approach the creator of the heavens and the earth? And so this morning, we're going to work our way through some of these priestly garments in Exodus 28. You're going to have to have your Bibles open. We're going to stop after each article of clothing and talk about it a little bit. And then we'll kind of have some concluding thoughts. But let's begin in Exodus 28. And let me read to you verses 1 through 5. Listen to God's word. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have with a spirit of skill, that they may that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. Now last week we were given a description of the tabernacle and the bronze altar. Now in chapter 28, God calls Aaron and his sons to serve him. And particularly, the focus here is going to be on Aaron, the high priest. Six priestly vestments are mentioned in verse 4. I've put an artist's rendering of it on the screen for you, for you to take a look at. But there it is. Kind of creepy without a face, but that's what it looks like. Or an artist's rendering, at least. And it'd be, there's six uh, uh, articles mentioned in your text. There's that breast piece, and then underneath that would be an ephod, kind of like the apron there. And beneath that, there would be the robe, and underneath that is the coat. And then, of course, there is the accessories, the turban, the sash. And though not listed in verse 4, our chapter also includes the undergarments of the priests. So the clothes set apart the nature of the priesthood. Special clothes to mark out special people for the special work they will do in God's special place. Notice in verse 3 that God calls the skillful, whom he will fill with a spirit of skill to basically tailor, hem, make this bespoke outfit for the priest. And these were going to be Holy Spirit-inspired clothes. Uh, later in Exodus 31, you're going to see in the construction of the clothes and the tabernacle itself, 
Bezalel and Oholiab are filled with the Spirit of God that they may do these things, that they may be artisans and craftsmen to create the tabernacle and to hem these outfits. I think it's noteworthy for us to consider that the first Spirit-filled person mentioned in the Bible is not Abraham, uh, it is not the patriarchs, it is not Moses, it's the construction foreman and the artists. Victor Hamilton notes, the Bible sanctifies the work and craftsmanship of the laborer as it does with the patriarch, prophet, and priest. What one does with one's hands is as sacred as what one does with one's mind. So that's the first item that we, or that's the overview in verses 1 through 5. And 6 through 14, we have the first item, which is the ephod. Follow along. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twine linen skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be like it and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave them, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of the, their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signet, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod, as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like, co like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. Now the ephod is like an open-ended vest. So uh, you can put the picture up again if you want. But the most important thing to note are there are two onyx stones on its shoulders engraven with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And these are, as verse 12 says, stones of remembrance. They're, they're for the high priest to remember the task to which he is called. You know, if you were the high priest, you probably had the best get up in town. And it's easy for the high priest to think, it's about me. But the stones were put on his shoulders as a reminder that it's about the tribes of Israel. It's about the people he is representing. It's as if whenever the high priest put on his ceremonial robes, he lifted the people on his shoulders and brought them before the Lord. Now these days we don't have priests. We live in an era in which Jesus Christ has fulfilled the work of priests. He has done and all the priestly work necessary. And that is why I am not called a priest. I'm called a pastor. And yet I would venture to say, like Peter, that as Christians we are a royal priesthood. And perhaps there is something here for us believers to learn and emulate that you are to be burden bearers for the people of God. That as we go before the Lord, we go with burdens of others upon our shoulders. 
Now notice one more thing about this ephod. And it's the material of the ephod. The ephod is made of the same cloth and same color as that of the tabernacle itself. It would be kind of like if every time I came up here, I wore a suit the color of this grayish turquoise blue thing. Okay? They had the same colors. It, it, it was, they almost blended in with the tabernacle. Now this isn't so the priests could be camouflaged inside, and so if anyone tried to come in, they would just hop out and be like, what are you doing here, or something like that. Rather, it's as if the high priest was being made part of a royal administration, a royal attendant to the heavenly king who dwelt in the midst of his kingdom people. That's what it's about. Next, we have the breast piece in verses 15 through 30. This is our longest passage here. You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it. Of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. And they shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, which engrave with his name for the 12 tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold, and you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece, and you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings in the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece, so it's on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue that I may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart, when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart and he, when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Okay, the breast piece is probably the most important article of clothing for the holy, for the, for the high priest. Uh, it's the lengthiest description that we have, and the breast piece is essentially a piece of fabric attached to the ephod. It's about nine inches by nine inches square, and it's a little bit like a pocket as well uh, inside. It's a pouch, a holy pouch, you could say. Uh, most important are the 12 stones in the front. Uh, no one really quite knows how to translate these 12 stones. Uh, every Hebrew kind of expert is, is kind of mixed in terms of exactly what these stones are. Uh, and yet these stones are important because 9 out of 12 of them are actually mentioned as being stones in the Garden of Eden. 
Uh, Ezekiel tells us that, Ezekiel 28. And so like we mentioned last week, the tent of meeting was to be like a garden of Eden. Beautiful, pure, holy, glorious. And so we get a sense of the purity and preciousness of Eden here with these stones. Now, each stone had a name of the 12 sons of Israel engraved upon them. Now, while the onyx stones on the shoulders had six on each, one was put onto each of the 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. And instead of on the shoulders, it is on the heart of the high priest. In other words, the high priest went about his intercessory work. His clothing was a reminder that he served on behalf of God's people. And it was the high priest's responsibility to have people's interest at heart. You know, I think this is a wonderful picture of pastoral ministry. How necessary it is for pastors to bear the people's needs before God on his shoulders. And how important it is to have the people on his heart and to intercede on their behalf. I also think this is a wonderful picture of all of you and of your intercessory ministry as you pray for one another. You know, church, I do think we give out those, uh, those church directories. I wonder what you do with them. But I hopefully, those are things that sometimes you walk around the house and you're just pinning it to your clothes right here on your chest because you're bearing them, you're interceding on behalf of these families these children, you're interceding on behalf of your, your friends and your neighbors, praying for them. Now, before we leave this section, we have to spend some time on verse 30. On verse 30. Because it mentions these strange things called Urim and Thummim. Because no one knows how to translate these things, they're just left in the Hebrew. Urim and Thummim. Some guess that they were uh, some dice that he would have in those pockets that he could bring out and throw to discern the will of God. Or maybe it's several pieces of things, maybe many stones. Others say there are just two stones, maybe one light and one dark to determine yes or no on a particular decision. Ultimately, we don't really know what it was like. We're only given eight verses about them and not a lot of description about them. But what is certain is that Israelites use these decision-making tools to get direct guidance from God. Either a yes, or a no, or wait. Saul wanted to know whether or not he should attack the Philistines. So he goes to the high priest to say, consult the Urim and the Thummim. Even in Nehemiah's day, when questions arose as to which people were eligible to be priests, there was they had to wait for the Urim and the Thummim to help them decide. Now, the Urim and Thummim weren't for personal use. It's not like a magic eight ball that you shake around and you say, hmm, should I do this? And it says, don't count on it. Or, hmm, should I do this? Looks hazy, you know, come back next time, or whatever it says. It wasn't for questions like, should I ask this girl out? It wasn't things for, th for those. No, it was only used by permission by the high priest and related to matters for national corporate obedience. God saw fit 
for a time to direct people on occasion with the Urim and the Thummim. Of course, if God wanted to, he could have given every single Israelite an Urim and a Thummim, but he didn't. In fact, we sometimes wish God would give us an Urim and a Thummim. Hmm, God, should I go to USC? Should I marry Mildred? Should I take the job at Theranos? However, God in his wisdom doesn't do it that way. He didn't do it for Israel. He gave them prophets. He gives us a mind that we can make decisions that we think is most God-honoring. Hebrews 1 tells us, in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. When God's people were in their infancy, they needed things like the Urim and the Thummim. But now salvation has reached its full maturity, and everything that God has wanted to say has been said in Jesus. Today, the most important decision we have to make is whether we will trust Jesus for our salvation and follow him the rest of our days. But don't be confused. The important thing to notice about this breast piece is that the high priest was a mediator. He represented the people before God and God before the people. He was a source of teaching. He was a source of wisdom. He communicated. The vo he was basically conveying the voice of God. All right, on to verses 31 to 35. We'll go a little bit faster through some of these. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment, so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. The robe of the high priest is blue, the same color used for the entrance of the curtain to the holy place. It hung down somewhat like a poncho. Uh, its hem was fringed with alternating bells and pomegranates. Now, some have asked why pomegranates. Some have speculated, well, when you open up a pomegranate, there are many, many seeds, and the color of the pomegranate is red, so it is the by the blood that many, many are saved. And I just think you're stretching a little bit too far. Uh, pomegranates were inside the decor of Solomon's temple, so most likely it's just a picture of fruitfulness, a picture of Eden. Bells were on the fringes of the robe, and now we're given a little bit more description in this passage why the bells are there, so that he doesn't die. Uh, every time he's walking into the holy place, it just rings. I don't know if you've ever gone on these, uh, to these national parks before where uh, you go hiking, and these people wear these things called bear bells. Uh, they're basically a little bell that you can attach to your hip or to your backpack, and they ring all the time while they're walking. 
Uh, it isn't so that they could annoy everyone around them and to destroy the scenery that you're looking at, but it's really theirs to announce to any bears in the vicinity that, hey, a human is walking around, please don't kill me. This is most likely what these bells were indicating for the priests. It was an announcement of sorts indicating the high priest was entering into the most holy place. It was a way of knocking on the door because you would be struck dead if you come in unannounced because you do not go into the holy place casually and flippantly. Okay, we get to the accessories here. The high priest outfit is topped off with a turban in verses 36 to 38. It says, you shall make a plate of pure gold and grave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts it shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. The most important part of the turban is this gold plate that says on it, holy to the Lord. The inscription marks him out as a high priest in his majesty's sacred service. It meant that the people he represented were a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And underneath all of this getup, is this white linen coat and, and there's a sash that ties everything all together. This isn't exclusive to the high priest, but other priests who served in the temple. So you see this in verses 39 to 41. You shall weave the coat in a checkerwork of fine linen. You shall make a turban of fine linen and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him. You shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And finally, verses 42 through 43, we have the undergarments of the priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips, the thighs. And they shall be on Aaron and his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Do you think God cares about the way he is worshipped? He cares down to the underwear. That's how much he cares. These undergarments are basically boxer shorts. They go from the hips to the thighs. And unlike pagan priests who wore next to nothing, God wants his servants to dress modestly. Why? Is it because modest is hottest? No, it's because the priest had a sacred duty. A holy duty. God wanted to distinguish Israelite religion from the sexual nature of pagan rituals. He didn't even want a hint of sexuality in worship. All right, we've made it all the way through. Now, what does all of this mean? What's the big deal about these clothes? Well, go back to verse 2. I think we're given this answer in the beginning and at the end. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And then at the very end, you see that same phrase again in verse 40. 
you shall make them for glory and beauty. The clothing of the high priest is for three things. It's for glory, it's for beauty, and it's for holiness. Not the glory and beauty and holiness of the high priest, mind you, but the glory and beauty is to reflect the glory and the beauty and holiness of God himself. For glory. The clothing is for glory. The word glory in Hebrew is kavod, meaning weight or heaviness or importance. And certainly the high priest's garment points to the gravity of the work that he was doing. There was something glorious about the high priest's calling, and this was displayed by the special grandeur of his clothes. And it was for beauty. The word here in Hebrew can mean splendor or radiance. The high priestly garments were beautiful. They were designed to be to, so that one can have some appreciation for things that are beautiful, for fashion, for style. The high priest was the best dressed man in Israel. His robes were made of pure white linen, decorated with a colorful yarn, decked out in gold, blue, purple, and scarlet. Our invisible God cares about how he is visibly represented and worshipped and the artistry involved. And it's for holiness. It's for holiness. These clothes were sacred, set apart. They were not everyday use. These garments were holy clothes for a holy calling. God, you notice, doesn't mention what he has on his feet. I mean, did God forget that he needs shoes? No, because he was walking on holy ground. He took off his sandals. The clothes tell us that this priest is a holy man doing holy work in a holy place on behalf of God's holy people. He must look the part to reflect the character of God. The clothes and the tabernacle with all its glory and beauty and holiness were not pointers to how important this high priest was. They were pointers to how glorious and beautiful and holy God is. That is why the psalmist can cry out in Psalm 27, 4, One thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Psalm 29, 2, Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name, worship the Lord in the splendor or the beauty of holiness. But there was one problem with the priest's clothes. No matter how magnificent his clothes were, how glorious, how beautiful, how holy these clothes were, they could not hide the sin of the high priest's Because ultimately, the clothes do not make the man. The inward reality of the priest's life could never match the outward splendor of his appearance. It won't be long before Aaron himself, this chosen high priest, is going to lead Israel into worshiping a golden calf. No, a greater high priest was necessary 
a better mediator, a better representative, someone who could truly reflect the glory, beauty, and splendor of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus is a high priest, unlike Aaron and his kin. Jesus, the Son of God, came, but he had no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He didn't wear an ephod, but a scarlet robe to be mocked. He didn't have a turban, but a crown of thorns upon his head. And it was on the cross where he suffered for our sins in naked glory that the beauty and holiness of God was perfectly displayed. The beauty and excellence of Christ is that all who will have Jesus as their high priest, all who repent and place their faith in Jesus, will have their own filthy garments taken off. And Christ gives you his garment of righteousness to put on, that we may stand in the presence of God now and forever. What will you wear when you meet the creator of heaven and earth? The righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. Be assured, Christian, that when Christ went upon the cross, he carried you on his shoulders. And as Isaiah says, your name is engraved on the palms of his hands. May God open our eyes to see what is truly glorious, what is truly beautiful and holy, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we realize that all our good works, O oh God, are but filthy garments before you. And yet, and yet, you look upon us with compassion. In our nakedness, you clothe us with love, the righteousness of Christ. Lord, we pray that we would no longer have anything to do with the old way of life that we would put off the old ways, take it off, and always be putting on Christ, putting on love, that we, your people, might properly display to this world your beauty, your glory, and your holiness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.